Welcome to See You on the Other Side, where the world of the mysterious collides with the world of entertainment. A discussion of art, music, movies, spirituality, the weird, and self-discovery. And now, your hosts, musicians and entertainers who have their own weakness for the weird, Mike and Wendy from the band Sunspot. See you on the other side, episode 150. Oh my yeah. gosh, 150 wow. episodes. That calls right. for celebration. 150. Oh That's amazing, God. you guys. Right. We should have brought you. the champagne today. Well, instead, we're bringing the boxed wine. <laughs> so, cheers to everybody for 150 episodes and frequent Yay. guest and cheers. fellow Wisconsin weirdo joining us tonight. <laughs> and this is exciting. So, our sesquicentennial episode uh, is featuring one of our favorite authors and writers and that is our friend mark o'connell hi mark how you doing hi everybody i'm doing great welcome back thanks yeah welcome back to to the show and we're so excited for you because you've had a huge book release uh in june of this year and the Close Encounters Man, I remember when you first started talking about this two years ago, and the first time we talked and had you on the show, you talked about J. Allen Hynek, the good doctor. <laughs> and first of all, congratulations on the publication of the book. Thank you. Yeah, congrats. Thanks. Congrats. And number two, thank you. We know you've been really, obviously, busy on all kinds of media. You were just on WGN last week, right? Yeah, on Friday morning. Yeah, that's huge. That was fun. Um, and then just on Coast to Coast AM, like just yeah. there, right? Like two days ago? Uh, Sunday night, yeah. Sunday night from midnight to two. And was that George Knapp interviewing you on Sunday? Yeah, yes, George Knapp, like a Scirocco. Yeah. Like a Scirocco <laughs> from the desert. <laughs> yes, that's the guy. That's the I guy. I love him. <laughs> and what's exciting about being interviewed by George Knapp, too, is he's the guy that, I mean, we wouldn't have Area 51 without him. Mm-hmm. Well, we wouldn't have our knowledge of Area 51. Right. We, well, we, our so-called knowledge Area 51. Like yes. he, bro- <laughs> yeah. he broke that original story. Uh-huh. So let's just get right in and start talking about Jalen. Now, we're going to talk to you about all those interviews and your favorite and the dumbest questions you received from non-UFO fans and everything in just a minute. But first of all, to anybody who doesn't know who J. Allen Hynek is, let's give him a quick refresher course on The Good Doctor and also how you got interested in him in the first place. Okay. J. Allen Hynek was a professional astronomer and college professor teaching at the Ohio State University and Ohio Wesleyan Universities right at the time that the modern UFO era began, exactly 70 years ago this month. Um, When UFOs started popping up all over the skies around uh, North America, the Air Force was in a complete bind. They couldn't explain what was going on. They were losing public confidence. They were trying to explain away every UFO sighting as something perfectly natural, but they needed a scientist to back them up on that and give them some cover. So the UFO researchers for the Air Force, who were at Wright-Patterson Field, uh, drove up the highway to where Dr. Hennick taught. He was already a known quantity because he had done some high-security government work during World War II, um, and they recruited him to join their project uh, at the time called Project Sign, and he had exactly one job. They would give him a pile of UFO reports, and he would go through report by report and say, oh, yeah, this one, that's obviously a misidentification of the planet Venus. That one is obviously a comet. This one's obviously a meteor. Uh, And one by one, he would knock down all of these UFO reports. 
but there were always 20% left over that, that he couldn't knock down. And that kind of becomes the key to his whole story. He left the UFO trade for a couple of years, went back to teaching. Three years later, 1952, the Air Force calls him up again. They need him again because the UFOs keep appearing. And um, Hynek says, sure, I'll come back. But uh, as he agrees to come back, he kind of has to admit to himself, holy crap, I can't believe people are still seeing UFOs three years later. And and then he starts looking through the newer files and he realizes, oh, man, there are still 20 percent of these reports that can't be explained. So all of a sudden, that 20% is a problem to him. And that's what sort of started this long, slow process of him changing his mind and converting from diehard skeptic to a true believer. Well, I love I love that you've mentioned the planet Venus, because that always makes me think of the X-Files episode with uh, the men in black, when Jesse, body, Jesse the Body Ventura and Alex Trebek show up as men in black. <laughs> uh, Jose Chung's from Outer Space. Uh-huh. Oh, that's my favorite episode of all time. <laughs> right. And then what happens is somebody's, you know, somebody sees a UFO and Jesse the Body Ventura is just like, what you saw was the planet Venus. <laughs> and I just, when you said that, I pictured, Je- I pictured Jesse the Body as Dr. J. Allen Hynek. And <laughs> things got really weird in the alternate history of my mind. I bet. Yeah. As so, they do. <laughs> so he was like picked by the military to investigate these things. And he had a more open mind than, you know, we think a lot of people probably do have today. And, and it took him a while to get around to that. Um, what inspired you to maybe want to tell his story? Like, why did you think, like, Dr. Hynek was someone that we just haven't heard enough about? Well, there were two things about Hynek that really intrigued me and that I and, and made me want to, want to tell his story. And the first one was the fact that he had this illustrious career as a UFO expert that you know, obviously all, all us UFO enthusiasts are familiar with, but he also had this really impressive career as an astronomer. And he accomplished an awful lot of really radical, amazing things as an astronomer that I never knew about. So I figured a lot of people never knew about those either. So the first thing that intrigued me was just this duality of his career, astronomer and UFO hunter. And, and it, I thought it was a cool story to look at how those two different careers informed each other over time. So that was the first hook for me. The second hook was um, a story that a lot of us are probably more familiar with, and that is the whole, um, the position Hynek found himself in in 1966 after the Michigan swamp gas case, um, when Hynek was basically hated by both sides of, of the UFO community. The Air Force was angry with him because he was no longer covering for them. He was no longer willing to explain away and debunk all the UFO reports. But at the same time, the UFO community was furious with him because they felt that he still was helping to cover up for the Air Force. So here's this guy in this completely impossible decision. He's kind of, he's trying to sort of straddle the line between the skeptics and the believers and not commit to one side or the other and remain open-minded and objective. And he's just getting crucified for it on both sides. So those were the two hooks that really grabbed me and made me want to tell his story. 
And you do go over the Michigan Swamp Gas case in an earlier episode of the show, but maybe we can get a uh, Reader's Digest version real quick mm. of why that's a famous case uh, for UFO nerds like myself. Sure. Well, it was, you know, it was one of the few UFO cases that really made national headlines. So that's the first big thing about it. All over southeast Michigan in March 1966, a whole bunch of people were seeing strange lights in the sky. All the sightings came to a head one weekend when first a farm family saw them in this swampland behind their farm. And then the next night, a whole bunch of college students saw the same lights in their college arboretum outside their dorm. Well, when you've got all told, they had over 100 witnesses, including law enforcement officers, college professors, the local uh, civil defense agent. So you've got this immense body of witnesses all describing very similar lights in the sky and on the ground. It became a huge, huge national event. Hynek comes in. He's being pressured by his bosses at the Air Force to come up with a quick solution so they can stamp this story out and get it off the national headlines. And at the end of three days of investigating, Hynek has a press conference and he says, well, while I couldn't prove it in a court of law, the objects these people all describe seeing sound an awful lot like swamp gas. And it just created this huge furor. Everyone in Michigan was was furious with Hynek because they felt he was you know, making fun of them all. Well, he did work in Ohio and stuff. So, I mean, it w- and he, you know, spent a lot of time in Illinois. It wouldn't be weird if he wanted to make fun of the people from Michigan. The Midwest rivalry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it does kind of sound like just blowing it off, you know, like, yeah. uh, yep, it was swamp gas. <laughs> yeah, I know. That, that is definitely what it sounded like. But, you know, I, I researched the hell out of this case. I devoted two chapters of the book to it. And I, I came to the conclusion that Hynek said exactly the right thing. Hmm. Well, I think acid was still legal in 1966, though, too. Like, it wasn't, I mean, you know, those college kids in the 60s were naughty. (laughs) The college kids, they were, it was like 87 young women in a a girls' dormitory at Hillsdale College, and they had names like Gidget and Pinky. Oh, man. Oh, you can't make that up. That is great. You know that every Air Force officer was like raising his hand to go on that particular. Uh, you know, it's like, go, I'll ask him questions. I gotta go. <laughs> I gotta go talk to Gidget. Yeah. I, I'd like to. I'd like to interview Benke personally. <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark, th- this is Allison from Milwaukee Ghost, and um, hey, I was wondering, you know, when did you first learn about J. Allen Hynek? I know for me. It was probably the Close Encounters movie. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the title of that, you know, came from his designations. And then also, like, seeing him, uh, you know, I, th- I think most people don't realize that he's in that movie as a cameo. And, uh, you know, but you, you've probably, all of you out there, if you've seen Close Encounters, you've probably seen him. You know, he's he's just such a uh, an iconic figure. You know, with his white hair and beard and pipe. You know, he, he just looks oh, like. Oh, I thought he. I thought one he of was those the academics. <laughs> no, he's not the mashed potatoes. He looks like one of those academics of old. Absolutely, and I I I couldn't tell you. I couldn't pinpoint point exactly when or where I first heard of him. Um, but I know you, 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 Mike and Allison. I'm sure you probably spent some time at the Big Bend Village Library. <laughs> yeah, we did. I we read did. all sixty books there. Yeah, I, I, well, I can't believe we didn't run into each other there. 
Well, my, <laughs> my mom was a volunteer librarian there. And some nights she would take me with her when she worked at the library. So I would be stuck in this little library for, you know, three oh, hours. What a looking great place to be stuck. Well, I know. <laughs> I, I, I appreciate it more now than I did then. <laughs> of course. <laughs> but I always gravitated toward the bookshelf that had the books about, you know, Chariots of the Gods, Bermuda Triangle, Post Poltergeist, Bigfoot, Loch Ness Monster, <laughs> and of course UFOs. So I just, you know, whatever handful of books they had there dealing with the topic, I just, I read those over and over and over again. So I'm pretty sure that was probably the first time I ever heard of Dr. Hynek and his work. And that would have been like when I was maybe six or seven or eight, you know, pretty oh, young. Right. It's just so weird that we're all like re- probably reading the same copies. <laughs> right. You were probably the ones that always had them checked out when I wanted to get them. Yeah, absolutely. And I was the one who'd always return it with like scratch marks and like pencil things and like things I underlined and stuff like that. Yeah, I was always the goofus and not the gallant. Oh man! Um, But so, but the close encounters thing—that's a particular kind of classification of a alien, or excuse me, not. There I am going to the extraterrestrial hypothesis right away again. My my no my bias my biases show. Uh, So. Mark, what is the the Close Encounters uh, classification system? What does it what does it mean? Just in case the uh, people out there don't know. Well, first of all, the Close Encounters uh, classification system was actually Dr. Hynek's third attempt at a classification system. Um, his first attempt uh, was in the '60s, and he came up with this idea where you would categorize UFO events by the strangeness, the high strangeness of the event, and by the reliability of the witness. That was his first stab at it. A couple of years later, he worked that into something where he had three three main categories of sightings, and those were uh, daylight discs, meandering nocturnal lights, and visual slash radar sightings. From there, he added on the close encounters of the first, second, and third kind, those three classifications. And those are simply close encounter. The first kind is you're making visual contact with an unidentified object within 500 yards or so. He figured that was close enough that you could make out physical detail, like, you know, size and shape and outline. Close encounter, the second kind, same thing, only in this case, there are the the UFO leaves behind physical traces. So that could mean scorch marks on the ground or landing pad imprints, or it could mean that it, the, the UFO knocked out your car's engine and headlights or gave you retina burns, you know, all those things have been reported numerous times. And then third kind uh, really ups the ante and includes UFO occupants, most of the time humanoid. But yeah, creatures or entities that are associated with the UFO or come from the UFO. And, and in those cases, you know, the witness either has visual contact or actually interacts with those beings. That's the one we want to avoid. I mean, yeah. some of us don't want to avoid. Right. Some of us want and to encourage, but yeah. <laughs> that's the one I want to avoid. We want to be careful what we wish for. Right. I want the, I want the non-probe kind. Yes. There, there is a fourth kind as well, right? Was that was that Jay Allen's or was that uh, added on? That was added on. The fourth. I think there is a fourth kind and a fifth kind now, and I think they they yeah. involve abductions. And, uh, and the probing, Mike was Yeah, talking. the probing, all that Whitney Strieber <laughs> kind of stuff. Yeah. That's right. The getting up close and personal. <laughs> right. That's uh, extra personal. Well, extra. <laughs> interspecies relations. Mm-hmm. But the thing is, when we think about, I mean, Dr. Hynek was working with Project Blue Book doing some of the very famous 
uh, like UFO cases yeah. throughout like the 1960s. And I was wondering some of his investigation style, like, did he just look at the reports? Did he send Air Force people to do it? Did he have psychiatrists or psychologists working? Like, when we think about today, if you would run a UFO operation, you'd want a psychiatrist, you'd want to have an investigator that knows how to interrogate people. And on a ghost TV show, you'd bring a psychic along just so you get yep. your share of yeah. BS. Um, <laughs> but, but, like, what, what was the investigation style when they were doing Project Blue Book back in the old... I'm, like, picturing Joe Friday from Dragnet, uh, you know, walking up to the a terrified person, doesn't care if they're going through PTSD or whatever, just to, you know, let me have it. So what was it like? Well, Heineck definitely had a Joe Friday approach. He was, he was, he was Mr. Just the Facts Man. But, but his work with, with Project Blue Book, though, you ask what their investigative style was like, it was so bare bones and, and, and so rudimentary. I mean, there was... The, 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 the Air Force officer in charge of Project Blue Book was always a very low-ranking officer who did not have much power. There was, never, there was never much of a budget. They operated out of, you know, a couple of just really run-down offices uh, at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. And Heineck really, for the most part, had no say in how a case was studied. He considered himself lucky if the Air Force would actually send him out to the site of the event just so that he could investigate it firsthand. That didn't always happen. A lot of times he was kind of stuck, you know, uh, interviewing the witnesses days or weeks after the fact, because that was as soon as he could get there. Um, you know, the Air Force has lots of planes, but they always made Heineck travel commercial air when he needed to go someplace. It, you know, their their approach with their approach was pretty uh counterproductive, I guess you could say. Hmm. So Heineck, you know, Heineck, you know, w was always kind of sort of working his way against the way the Air Force was trying to operate. You know, one of the one of the fun stories I learned that I mentioned in the book is that um, he, he had this really great assistant, Jenny Zeidman, who worked with him for a long, long time. And um, whenever somebody would call them directly at like the Ohio State University to report a UFO sighting, Dr. Heineck would say, okay, that's cool, but now could you call this office at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base and report it to them? Because if you report it to them, they might pay for us to investigate it. But if you but if you report it to us, they won't. So, you know, he, so he and Zeidman sort of worked out these little ways to work the system to try to get, you know, just a little bit more resources, but it didn't always work. Well, I'm also wondering too, like, did he have an, I'm thinking about, he was knee deep um, in the UFO stuff during the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Mm -hmm. And I was just wondering, I had never heard, uh, you know, you hear the regression tapes of Barney Hill and they're terrifying and I things like, like that, but I'd never heard if the Air Force or Project Blue Book had ever investigated that. Was there ever an official investigation by those guys of that particular incident? Now, if you guys at home are playing along, Betty and Barney Hill were a couple in the 1960s that this is like the first internationally famous UFO abduction missing time incident that kind of penetrated the national consciousness. Yeah. If there was an official airport investigation, they kept it very well hidden because this kind of case was a case that involved not just UFO occupants, but an abduction and missing time was an embarrassment to everyone. It was an embarrassment to the Air Force and it was an embarrassment to Heineck because it just became so much harder to explain and so much harder to take seriously. So at the, at the beginning, I think it was just the day after 
Betty and Barney had their interrupted journey, um, Betty actually contacted the local Air Force base um, and report. Yeah. And, and they and Betty and Barney spent some time on the phone with an officer at the Air Force base. And, you know, he heard them out. They have no idea if he recorded anything or if he started a file on them or anything. But he basically heard them out and and it, it went no further. And and Betty and Barney really did not do anything with their memories of that event for a couple of years, as you probably know. It took them a couple of years before they decided that they needed to, you know, maybe see a hypnotist to try to figure out what the heck happened to them that night. Um, so, yeah, that was that was a case where the Air Force may well have investigated. But if they did, they kept it very, very well hidden. They just don't want to know what they found. Well, yeah, I mean, why would they? You know, thinking about famous cases, and we just were talking about Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Before that, did anybody from Hollywood ever approach Dr. Hynek for maybe some like research or ideas for a movie or anything? Was he on set for anything, or uh, did he start hanging out in those circles a little bit to, uh, well, make extra money, or just, just, you know, he loves celebs or whatever? Before the Spielberg movie, no. I, I never saw any indication that he was ever involved in anything like that. And I think he, if you would have asked him in the 50s or 60s about anything like that, he probably would have just laughed in your face. He probably would have thought that was a pretty unseemly thing for a college professor to do, to get involved in movie making. There were some movie making tie-ins. There was a guy named um, Donald Kehoe who wrote a couple of best-selling UFO conspiracy paperbacks in the 1950s. And one of Kehoe's books was, um, even though it was a non-fiction, you know, supposedly a non-fiction book about real UFO events, uh, Columbia Pictures uh, bought the rights to it, and it was turned into this nifty little Ray Harryhausen movie called Earth versus the Flying Saucers, that you oh, may yeah. recall from your childhood. Yeah. So that's the one direct Hollywood tie-in that I know of, but it didn't involve Heineck. Okay. So, Dr. Heineck is a fascinating guy, but Mark, when you were coming to it as a, well, researcher, somebody who's been interested in this stuff, you've had your UFO blog for a little bit. In fact, your Twitter handle is Mark UFO Connell. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, obviously, and you've had a lifelong interest in this, and we've, we've discussed that before. Uh-huh. Kind of explain to the audience. So, so the people that are listening, when they're thinking about picking up the book or reading it, they're thinking about what's the perspective of the author, right? Because that that really does shape a lot of how the story goes. Mm-hmm. So where would you put yourself on the UFO level, let's say between Carl Sagan and <laughs> Giorgio? Giorgio's too close. In the crazy spectrum. In the continuum. Let me have to answer this one very carefully. I, I, I would. Uh, I'm well. I'm obviously more on the on the Giorgio side of things. I'm not, I don't know how far. I don't know if that can be measured. But but I, I'm more on the Giorgio side of things than the Carl Sagan side of things for sure. <laughs> and that's funny because uh, we're just talking about this, and I think you you blogged about it a little bit this week or last week that Alejandro Rojas from Open Minds labeled you a skeptic. And what I mean, first of all, is a guy that just wrote a book on Dr. Hynek and uh, that's written science fiction and's been interested in this stuff. 
you know, being labeled as like, you are the representative from the committee for the scientific investigation for claims of the paranormal or whatever. Seems like, like, are you calling me a traitor, pal? Uh, <laughs> but what, what, what kind of happened there? Well, I, that's how I took it. Well, um, there was some chatter on a Facebook group. Um, I think it was, oh gosh, was it the UFO, UFO digest? No, that's not it. At any rate, there's, you know, there are numerous UFO interest groups on Facebook. And Facebook is the place where we have reasonable conversations. Right. Every day. Oh, right. Yes. <laughs> We're all on our best behavior. <laughs> so a discussion was somebody posted something in one of these communities about an old speech that Dr. Heineck had given. And in the comments that followed, people were mentioning, oh, you know, this guy, Mark O'Connell, just wrote a book about Dr. Heineck. We should all read it. And at that point, Alejandro Rojas chimed in on the comments section and said, yeah, you know, I'm talking with Mark about doing an interview with him. I think he's kind of a skeptic. And I saw that and I just kind of I really reacted badly <laughs> because because I have seen that term skeptic used as, you know, um, a, a bat to beat people on the head with. If you're a that skeptic, insult, yeah. you're you're the enemy. You are you're closed-minded. You're ignorant. You're not willing to accept new ideas, and you're an enemy to UFO culture. That's how I took it, and so I wrote a blog post about that. Well, I'm happy to say Alejandro read the blog post. He saw he he read some more of the comments on Facebook, and he wrote to me and he said, "Hey, you've got this wrong. That's not what I'm trying to call you." Oh, oh, that's good. Well, that's good. Oh. Well, I was hoping we'd have some kind of rap culture beef or whatever between Mark and Alejandro. And obviously, we'd have to rep Wisconsin over here. We'd be like, what's up, yo? Everybody takes sides. Oh, wow. You know, Alejandro Rojas is just, just seems like I haven't met him, but he just seems... Uh, strikes me as the sweetest guy so you know for no, for cool. um my mind i'm just thinking that that maybe he's trying to reclaim uh that term of skeptic you know rather than you know using as as any kind of epithet well yeah i, I that's kind of the feeling i got from him when he responded to me was that he was trying to he would he was simply trying to say that um i'm somebody who has I have filters. That's the way I'd like to describe it. I have filters. There's a lot of stuff I'll believe, but there's some things that I just won't believe either because I have filters. And 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 I look at I try to look at things critically. So so Alejandro ended up I mean what he ended up saying was that that's what he was trying to describe. So so we we we've uh, we're all good now. And I'm I'm gonna do a talk with him later this week, so that should be fun. Yeah, so everybody can listen to you on Open Minds as well yeah. on your podcast. It does bring up an interesting point about the use of you know the term skeptic and yeah. how, like you were saying, in this community, it kind of has a different connotation sometimes. I think the term will need a lot more rehabilitation. Yeah, right. I think well, it's gonna I take mean, a lot more. It's good for us to to uh, deal with that because you know I think you know people who are outside of the community, you know, maybe they don't understand the, the kind of rivalry that goes on. Yeah. Um, and, and the so-called skeptics. I mean, I think, think uh, people really want to reclaim that, that term because, you know, a lot of uh, the people out there who claim skepticism are, you know, you could, if you look critically at it, it seems that they're really cynics. 
it seems that they really want to just debunk and anything that that doesn't neatly fit into the materialist uh, materialist worldview, uh, they just want to discount totally. Uh, even though phenomena is there, I mean, to deny it uh, is is to you know put your head in the sand. So you know, I think this really needs to to be addressed. So I'm glad that that um, you know this happened in a way because because yeah. maybe you could have been talking about it on open minds the whole um, whether you're you're truly a skeptic or not. Because you know, I would think you know when you have filters. That the, that's the, the true meaning of skepticism. But taking the other side of it, and I totally agree with you, Allison, but I, I will say that sometimes I appreciate the skeptics because oftentimes, you know, when I want to look at something that has a paranormal story to it or something, the skeptics are the one that will actually have true history, you know, reports and things like that, as opposed to the, you know, the whimsical fun... <laughs> <laughs> the stuff that I want to believe, <laughs> right? but I, I like to make sure, you know, a lot of times with folklore, for example, um, I, I'll just give you a, a example of that case was when I went to visit Stoll Cemetery that has a long history of stories about the devil coming out on Halloween and all kinds of paranormal phenomena there. And I wanted to know where did this all originate? And, you know, it turned out I found on a skeptic site <laughs> Sorry to say, but, you know, they had the actual, they thought there was a professor at the university who had been teaching folklore and he was doing an experiment to try to see if he could start a legend himself. Yeah. Yeah. So now whether that's true or whether there's more to it, I don't know, but I found that particularly interesting and and helpful in my own research. Yeah, definitely. Well, and yeah, yeah, skeptic (laughs) websites, you know, are, are, you know, valuable resource. Well, let's hear what what Mark has to say about this. I I think you and I, Wendy, could go and go on this. (laughs) We definitely could. Well, I was thinking what what Wendy was saying got me thinking that, um, you know, there's this there's this irony that the explanations that a skeptic will come up with to explain an unusual phenomenon are often just as wigged out as the explanations that we come up with and you know what i mean when i say wigged out i just mean they're just as extreme just as um implausible or improbable or whatever word you want to use they're not you know they're very often they're not any more um they're not any more uh you know fact-based or or you know reliable than than what the what the true believers come up with um I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of an example. Well, well, here, here's an example. Okay, now I'm I, I have problems with the whole Roswell UFO mythology. I've you know I've written about that a lot on my blog. It's I'm, it's not a favorite case of mine. I think there are a lot of problems with it. But then you've also got you know the Air Force publishing their rebuttals to the to the uh, Roswell story and saying, well, those bodies were really you know crash test dummies. That, that we, you know, we dropped out of the sky to see how they would survive, like falling out of his aircraft, whatever their story was. And it's kind of like, come on, you guys, this has got to be a put on. It's like, don't, if you're going to explain something away, your explanation needs to make more sense than the other guy's explanation. And in that case, it really didn't. So they, you know, they don't do themselves any favors. That's a good point. Yeah. Well, I think about that um, but when Bill Clinton was talking about Roswell. And I mean, you always had to worry, like, what's coming out of his mouth? Like, you know, because uh, <laughs> uh, he, 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 he just he's a smooth, smooth talking guy. So you always gonna be like, OK, 
Like, what does he want here? And does he want to, you know, he's just like, well, we looked into it for the 50th anniversary right. and just, a, you know, weather balloon, you know. All right. Well, I think he's still trying to figure out uh, what the meaning of the word is, is. So, <laughs> right. The only thing he says, right. is I, I, I did just not discount. have sexual relations with that alien. <laughs> That's right, Bill. We believe you. Well, yeah. this, this question came up the other day in another interview. You know, somebody brought up the whole John Podesta thing and how Hillary Clinton went on the Jimmy Kimmel show during the campaign and promised yeah. that if she was elected president, she would immediately sign an executive order, you know, commanding the Air Force oh, yeah. to release everything they know. And I just I said, look, you know, we've heard that same. We heard that for eight years while Bill Clinton was, or no, we didn't hear it for eight years. At the end of Bill Clinton's presidency, suddenly John Podesta pops up and says, oh gosh, I'm so sorry. I didn't take advantage of being in the White House and, you know, and, and really demand that all this information be released. Eight years later, Barack Obama's in the White House. John Podesta's on his staff again. Dude keeps his mouth shut for eight more years. And then, and then when his job's almost over, he says, oh, gosh, I really wish I had done something when I had a chance to reveal Oops. all that information. I just feel like John Podesta, shut up. I really wish I had the president's. I really wish I had the presidents here. I really wish I knew the most powerful people on the planet and I could ask him about aliens. Yeah, what a shame. It didn't work out. Yeah. You know, I just, I just didn't think of it when I watched Independence. What, what do you think is going on there? This seems like an itch we should scratch. It seems to me maybe John Podesta think, knows this is an easy way to get headlines. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know what's going on. Yeah. I can't. I, I can't see what's in his heart, Allison. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to. But it's good to be skeptical of that because I mean Hillary was on. She really said she's going to look into it, yeah. and you're like you're not going to look. You were already there, Hillary. You you obviously the one cutting up the alien bodies. Like we know <laughs> it. She was going for the paranormal vote. Right. Oh, that's right. She, at, which is you know at, which at, is a pretty big vote. It is. Yeah. Well, there there is something to it because I tell you, I spend a lot of time on Twitter following and meeting new people who are into coast to coast AM, who are into aliens, who are into ghosts and things like that, and they are. It's disclosure truthers and things like that. And a lot of the people who, you know, uh, you know, they'll say something about aliens. And the next thing we'll say, hashtag make America great again. <laughs> and like in an election that was decided by what a few a few dozen thousand or tens of thousands of votes of like in Ohio and Wisconsin and things like that, like that could have switched either way. You know, when you're telling somebody they're going to get disclosure, you might get that guy to sneak out of the basement one night, you know, to be like to turn off the Netflix binge and slime his way over to the thing and hit (laughs) Hillary on the, you know, on the election day. So uh, when you're trying to win an election, you'll do anything possible. And that's including sending John John Podesta out to try to round up (laughs) UFO votes. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. I can't deny it. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Come on. If they're going to send around vans for homeless people, they're going to troll for the conspiracy theory guys. So. That's right. Um, we talked about skeptics and just, just a couple more things on it. We did. We really went into it last week when we had our conversation with Mike Cleland and uh, Robbie Graham from UFOs reframing the debate. And, and skepticism is – I think it's so important because – like it's too easy to 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 want to believe all this stuff. Yeah. And you know, you think about like we all know Don Schmidt. We're friends with him. He's a really nice guy. But that Roswell slides business, get out of like you 
you got to get out of town. Oh, like, man. you got to get, like, out of town. Like, you have to spend six months feeling bad, and then you can come and, back. And exile. <laughs> you were going to exile Don Smith. <laughs> and the thing is, I think about, you know, who else was there was Richard Dolan. I didn't know Richard Dolan was there. Oh. And we just met Richard Dolan last year. I'm like, Richard Dolan's a cool guy. Is it like, But yeah. he was associated with that, and he never in his presentation was like, guys, I... Dude, I've been drinking for like two weeks. My <laughs> wife left me. Like, I saw the slides. I, I I had to close one eye and it looked like an alien, not like a mummified baby. Like, Aww. he could have said that and all could be forgiven. But that stuff is just... But now he's got to go into exile. He, he takes Take a couple months off before you come back and tell everybody that the new thing you have is a smoking gun, right? Aww. It. Uh, and, and so I feel like skepticism is so important because yeah. we, it needs to be kept in check. Because otherwise, people will take advantage of people who want to believe all the time. And it's well, up to people like us to make sure that people don't get taken advantage of. Well, Mike, I just got to say, it's burning in me. So I, I got to say that, <laughs> you know, right, as... I see you're on fire. <laughs> as Here it Mark comes. was saying before, you know, Mark, you were saying that, you know, a lot of times the, the explanations of, or, you know, the uh, dismissals of so-called skeptics... Um, you know, also don't make any sense. So, I mean, both sides need to be kept in check. That's why it's so compelling when you talk about um, the um, swamp gas case, uh, how, you know, um, how Dr. Heineck, he was like right in the middle and just exploring that, like how difficult that is to actually stand your ground in the middle when both sides hate you. Um, but that seems to be the right road to be on because, uh, you know, both sides have crazy ideas and you know what is going on in, in our society right now or has been is is that the people who are so-called skeptics you know people just naturally think you know what they say is more reliable which is not true it, which is a bias in itself so i just think that you know there's there's a lot to this this discussion that we're having right now yes you know we do need people with a true skeptical viewpoint um and i don't think the cynics really give us that what would you say mark i think maybe another way of looking at it uh, this whole are you a skeptic thing or are you just you know do you have filters is to just say we just need to we just need to raise the bar higher we need to have a higher threshold of of credibility you know we we have to look at like you said the next smoking gun i think we need to um be very skeptical of anyone who says they have a smoking gun based on past experience. I think, I think that kind of, that kind of, that kind of labeling smoking gun is like, for me, that's just a red flag. That's not something very you're excited about. That's a red flag for me. That's marketing. Yeah. Well, yeah, good point. And I'm also reminded of something that Heineck had said in, um, in 66, shortly after the swamp gas fiasco, he appeared on a CBS uh, TV news special hosted by Walter Cronkite and he did an interview with one of the with one of the news people. And the, the person, the interviewer keeps on trying to needle Heineck about um, aliens and spaceships coming from other planets. And he keeps trying to bait Heineck into, you know, talking about aliens and and uh, and and uh, spaceships. And Heineck won't bite and he won't bite and he won't bite. And finally, at the interview, at the end of the interview, um, Heineck says, look. I don't have a problem with anyone saying that UFOs are spaceships from another planet with aliens in them, but the burden of proof is on them. 
Simple as that. Fine. You can throw any theory out there you want, but then, you know, put your money where your mouth is. I think that's a great move into the next area where you're saying Dr. Hynek on CBS. Now, you've had to do a lot of media lately, and it's been there's been a whole bunch of paranormal people, a whole bunch of like podcasts and aliens and stuff like that, but it's also you've had to deal with the straights. <laughs> straights. <laughs> right? You had to deal with regular media. You had to uh. deal with people who like they, you know, we take paranormal stuff. And we're like, and we we're even tongue in cheek here. Oh, so we're still pretty serious about it, as compared to other places on the yeah. internet. And we even keep it kind of fun. But a lot of those places, like you go on a a national radio station or, or a morning zoo somewhere, and they're gonna be like, okay, Kim Kardashian. And whatever's happening in The Bachelor in Paradise. And we got a guy who wrote a book on UFOs. All right. <laughs> so, you know, when you were dealing with the, the main, the, the lamestream media, uh, when you were dealing with those people, <laughs> what was, what was the, was it, ever, was it fun? Was it respectful? Did anybody ask any questions? Did they treat you like you were crazy? Like, uh, I'd like to hear a little bit about that when you have to, like Dr. Hynek, they kept on trying to bait him because they wanted to get a quote. The quote would be the, the head of uh, the Air Force's Project Blue Book all of a sudden says aliens are real right. and they just want that quote for the headline. Uh, Did you experience any of that? That, it's been a really interesting experience because I will tell you honestly, the one media event appearance that I was most nervous about was Coast to Coast AM. I wasn't okay. worried about any That's of the morning zoo DJs or any of the interviews I've done. I haven't really been worried about them because I just assumed that they would just be interested people. And for the most part, that's proven to be absolutely true. I was nervous about Coast to Coast AM because, you know, I know that I'm taking some heretical stances in my book. And I just was kind of expecting that I would I would get a lot of flack if if not from George Knapp. I wasn't necessarily expecting it from from Mr. Knapp, but definitely from callers. If he opened up the phone lines, you know, I just assumed that I would get some some people challenging me on things. And I wasn't really looking forward to that because, you know, those kinds of th things can get uncomfortable. They can even get a little nasty. Mm -hmm. But I have to say my worst fears proved to be completely groundless. Every every media experience I've had over the past week and a half or two weeks, whatever it's been, um, every every one has has really been positive. People approach it differently, um, but I would say I haven't had a single interview where the hosts or the interviewers were um, trying to catch me in something or trying to make me look stupid. Or, or, or where they made fun of UFOs or UFO witnesses or any of that. I, didn't I haven't encountered any of that. Well, we still have a few minutes to change that. Okay, <laughs> do, your, do your worst, man. Do your worst. Um, um, you know, it varies. Like when I did, when I did the, um, the, uh, the Bill and Wendy show, which I was surprised it wasn't the same Wendy, Wendy. I, I thought, uh, uh, just kidding. Only one of them. <laughs> Who's taking my name? Be only one. <laughs> they travel from place to place. They often dye their hair red. <laughs> so, so, you know, last Friday, I do the, the Bill and Wendy show on WGN radio, and their approach is similar to yours. Okay. They take a pretty lighthearted approach to it, they like to have fun. And so they just were having fun with the interview and I had fun. And, you know, at one point they asked, they asked me something about alien implants. 
And so I started and I mentioned, hey, there's, you know, there's this doctor and Allison, you sent me that press release. Thank you for that. Oh, yeah. And I said, yeah, yeah there's this doctor. Unfortunately, he's not no longer with us. Yeah. He, there's this guy who specialized in removing alien implants. And sure enough, when, when they open the phone lines, the first caller is this woman who says, who says, yeah, I think I had a UFO experience in my past because a while back I injured my foot. And when they x-rayed my foot, they found that there's a needle inside my ankle. And, sh- and then she sent an image of the x-ray to Bill and Wendy, and they actually have it. We're all looking at this image, this X-ray of a wow. foot with a little with a needle stuck in, sort of. It was crazy, and I just had to. I just had to say, you know what? This is this is above my pay grade. <laughs> I have no idea what to say about this. I don't know what it means, but as long as the needle doesn't hurt your foot, I guess it's okay. <laughs> In this research, and you're talking about things above your pay grade and stuff like that, um, you know, did you come in with a, a certain notion about Dr. Hynek or a certain notion about the field in general uh, before you wrote the book? And then after the, you know, the years-long process of finishing the book, um, what do you think changed in your perspective, changed in your opinion of the man? Or how did your viewpoint as uh, someone that's always loved this kind of stuff and been interested changed by your uh, years of research into Dr. Hynek. Well, there were there were two discoveries about Dr. Hynek I think that have made that had the greatest impact on the way I viewed him as a human being and as a character in a story, which is you know basically what I was treating him as. Um, and the first thing was reading through his colleague Jacques Vallée's published journals. Vallée tells a story about how in the late 1960s the two of them were they were driving to Denver to take part in the the Condon committee. They were going to testify before the Condon committee at the University of Colorado. And they got kind of philosophical that night driving through Denver in their rent-a-car. And Dr. Hynek starts telling um, Dr. Vallee that the reason he wanted to become a scientist was to explore the fringes of science. He wanted to investigate the things that science couldn't explain. And they went on to have this really interesting heart-to-heart conversation about their spiritual beliefs and how they were both interested in the Rosicrucians Dr. Hynek talked about Rudolf Steiner, who was a really famous spiritualist who believed that there was a another dimension ne- next to ours that we could visit if we if we only learned the knack. We could visit this other dimension and we could visit with, you know, people beyond the grave and we could visit with spiritual entities. So so learning that Dr. Hynek had this really pronounced spiritual bent to him, that was a big eye opener. That helped me understand who the guy was. Um, but the other big thing was doing researching at the archives at Northwestern University, where Hynek taught for about 25 years, they have a lot of correspondence files. And I would find these files that, and it really started after the swamp gas case in March 66 where his correspondence files would be just stuffed, stuffed full of letters from admirers all around the country and all around the world. And they would be writing these very lengthy letters to Dr. Hynek saying, hey, I want to tell you about my UFO experience or, hey, I want to tell you about my new theory of reality. And they would send these really long, wordy, sometimes a little scary (laughs) letters to Dr. Hynek. And Dr. Hynek and his assistant at the time, Bill Powers, 
um, would they also had copies of their responses to these people. And the responses they wrote back were equally long and detailed and very thoughtful and very respectful. They would write back to these people and say, well, now about this point you made on page three, let's look at that. Here's what I think about that. So I'm reading through these letters and thinking, oh, my gosh, how did they remain so patient and so respectful and kind to these people who really sent them, in some cases, some kind of strange letters with kind of strange ideas? Well, I couldn't ask Heineck about it, but I did have a chance to talk to Bill Powers before he passed away. And I brought this up with him and he just kind of chuckled and he said, well, Alan and I both believe that as long as somebody had an idea to share or an experience to talk about, they deserve to be listened to. And I just thought, wow, that's kind of beautiful, you guys. That's I and, love that. Yeah, I, I thought it was very profound, and I kind of used that as my guiding principle in in telling the story in the book. So those are the you asked about, you know, sort of defining points where I really understood who Heineck was. Those are the two big moments. And and so it seems like, you know, that that um, I hope there's somebody out there still doing things like that, you know still responding in, in such a, a gentlemanly manner. And and it seems like... He's probably we, doing it on Twitter. <laughs> what? <laughs> well, the oh, thing is, Allison, there's nobody there's, there's nobody to write those letters to these days. That's the problem. No, right? You know, yeah, except and, Giorgio. Well, <laughs> well, I wonder, if, <laughs> you wrote, if you wrote Giorgio, would, would, he, would he have that same level of depth and respect and uh, collaboration that that uh, then, was shown by Heineck and his assistant. It really was something, something there. there. Yeah. I, I doubt you could see the ink past the hair gel on whatever he sent you. <laughs> well, and it, it seems to me that, you know, when you think of like Giorgio Suclos and you think of, you know, all, all of that, like how, how the media covers it or, uh, you know how it's popularized. I mean, you know, maybe it it's you know we we've been taken away from dealing with things in a scientific manner. Uh, you know, it, back in the day, you know, there was more room for thought, perhaps, and and now it's just all hype. I'm sorry, what were you going to say, Wendy? Oh, I was just going to mention that just the way that you described their approach to responding to everybody, you know, and not ignoring people who might seem a little out there or maybe not so polite. It reminded me a lot of the Art Bell approach. Oh, you know, yeah. Listen to everybody very carefully. And he was always really respectful. You never got a feeling that he was kind of like rolling his eyes or laughing at anyone, even when they, you know, you might wonder if it was somebody acting or somebody with some Bonkers. issues. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really good point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that's one thing I always loved about Art Bell was because his responses of being so respectful and interested and, you know, regardless of the tone or the, uh, the way the information was presented, it made you actually seriously consider it and maybe consider some things that you might not have otherwise encountered or heard or, you know, looked at before. So yeah, that's the genius of the guy. Definitely. Yeah. But what a drama queen. Every time, you know, every time he comes back in the air, then all of a sudden, they're shooting at my house. I have to leave the air, but I can't, you know, but I can't tell you about it. And when the time, when the time is right, you'll know. You'll see my name in the sky. I mean, I love Art Belt, too, and he was the best. But, but the, the other thing give me is, a break. Yeah, the other thing is, like, so Art listened, but, you know, the difference in what 
what I'm hearing you say, Mark, is that uh, Dr. Hynek, in his responses, it sounds like, you know, he wasn't like, oh, well, whatever you believe. I mean, he, he was really like digging down into what they said and giving an honest assessment, you know, whether, whether it probably said to them that, you know, this wasn't, this was something that was explainable, you know, in, in astronomy terms or something like that, or whether it was, no, you know, that really is something we need to look into. So, I mean, I think that's the, the level of rigor is the difference uh, with Heineck, because it's not just listening, it's also responding uh, in a way that, that, you know, that shows you're interested in, and really, let's get to the bottom of this. Let's not, let's just, let's not just hold this up for entertainment. No, we're really interested in figuring out what's going on. And that's what I think we've lost, unfortunately, in, in this culture that we have today. Yeah. Well, you know, we, um, we talked before about how when he started out working for Project Blue Book, you know, he it was just it was just sitting at a desk with a stack of papers in front of him, with all these UFO reports that he would have to go through one by one. And that's that was sort of his his whole involvement for the first few years. But then in 1952 or 53, I guess, for the first time, um, instead of just sitting behind a bed desk, he actually got sent out to South Dakota and North Dakota to do his first field investigation. And I think that I think that had a big, big effect on the way Heineck approached not just the UFO phenomenon, but approached UFO witnesses. Because all of a sudden, for the first time, he's talking face to face. And in this in this North Dakota, South Dakota case, there were a lot of witnesses and they were all sorts of different kinds of people. They were military people, control tower operators, pilots, ground observers, um, people with all sorts of different levels of education and experience. And for the first time ever, Heineck's dealing with them face to face. And I think that case and all the, and the cases that came soon after that really had a big effect on him and how he treated people. Because it was right around that same time that he was giving an address to um, a, a gathering of scientists in Boston, the American Optical Society, and they had already had two speakers get up on 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 stage and and deliver deliver papers, basically making fun of UFOs and making fun of UFO witnesses. And then Heineck yes. gets up to give his talk, and he he makes this great statement, and he he says, "Look, ridicule is not part of the scientific method, and the American people shouldn't be taught that it is." And that, you know, that became his operating principle throughout the rest of his career. Cool. Wow, I love that. Well, that's an awesome story. And speaking of stories, we have a couple more questions for you, Mark, and thank you for being generous with your time, uh, when obviously the probably the last thing you want to do uh, after <laughs> after talking about J. Allen Hynek for hours and hours straight is to keep continuing to talk about J. Allen Hynek. But <laughs> spe speaking of stories, when you were prepping for your media blitz, Okay, you probably prepped some stories. You're like, okay, so I can get them off the cuff and so I can knock them out. Did you prepare anything that nobody asked you about and you mm -hmm. didn't have a chance to finally tell a story or an anecdote? What is that anecdote? Because we would like to hear it. <laughs> well, there are a couple things. There are a couple of surprises. There are, or I should say there are a couple of things late, later in the book that I thought would be big surprises to UFO enthusiasts. And so far, nobody has mentioned any of them. And I'm not sure if it's because they just haven't gotten that far in the book or what. But the two big the two big things I was so excited about because of this, these were like my scoops, my big scoops in my book. 
Number one was, so we talked about the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And there was a character in that movie who was a French scientist played in the movie by Francois Truffaut. And UFO lore says that that character was modeled after Dr. Jacques Vallée, who was Dr. Hynek's friend and colleague for many, many years. Well, I found out that that's absolutely not true. People have been saying that for 40 years now since the movie came yeah. out. Spielberg has never commented on it publicly that I'm aware of. Um, but I, I found a statement by Heineck where he said, he said, no, that character was actually based on this, a French astronomer named Claude, Claude Poher, who Heineck had, had ah. some dealings with. Claude Poher was also a UFO, uh, an astronomer who turned into a UFO researcher. So that was one big thing. I thought people, I thought that would be making heads explode. What? It wasn't oh, Jacques Vallée. <laughs> but that blew you my mind. You made my head explode? Because that... <laughs> At, that's like talk about great marketing. You can be like, oh yeah, well Steven Spielberg modeled the character after this guy. Right. You gotta, you gotta have to buy his book. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, we're, I think yeah. we can work on that. The other, the other big surprise was there's this, you know, a big chapter late in Heineck's life where he and his wife moved down to Arizona. They left Chicago and moved down to Scottsdale, Arizona, and the plan was to open up sort of a, a western subsidiary of his center for ufo studies in chicago um and the whole thing there were promised they had a there were these two um gold mining entrepreneurs uh uh tina choate and and uh, uh brian myers who kind of talked heineck into moving to arizona and they had a millionaire friend who was going to finance this huge ufo research center in scottsdale well, those plans all fell through. There were some. There were a lot of hard feelings. Uh, somewhere along the line, some valuable USO, UFO uh, case files went missing, and a lot of people were pointing their fingers at Brian and Tina and saying, "Well, they had something to do with it." But I don't think anything's ever been proven. Upshot of this is these two people, Brian and Tina, have not spoken to anyone in the UFO community for over thirty years. Because wow. they felt like they had targets painted on their backs. And so they just weren't going to open themselves up to that. Well, and people I talked to when I was researching the book, I would ask people, you know, how to get a hold of Brian and my, uh, Brian and Tina. And they would say, oh, don't even bother. You know, they're not going to talk. Even if you can find them, they're never going to talk to you because it's such a sore subject. Well, and then I found them. I found them last summer, just about a year ago. And they were just the nicest people, and they actually really wanted to talk about this experience. They weren't sure if they could trust me at first, so we spent about three or four hours on the phone be before they even agreed to let me record the conversation and interview them. When, when they did that, what was their like? What was their litmus test? You know, were they like? What were your parents like? What are your kids like? <laughs> what do you well, What do you like to do? Are you a Brewers fan? They just, ba they, I mean, they just basically wanted to know my point of view in the Heineck story, and I, you know, and I just said, I'm just trying to tell, I'm just trying to tell Heineck's life story. I'm trying to understand, you know, what brought him to Arizona. What was his experience like here? I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody or, you know, accuse anybody of anything. That would, that's not what this book is about. I'm just trying to understand Dr. Hynek. And the thing is, Brian and Tina, what, what became very clear to me very quickly was that Brian, Brian and Tina had an immense amount of affection for Dr. Hynek. They really treasured their time working with him, even though things didn't work out well in the end. 
they still treasured the experience of having known him and having worked with him. So that was kind of what I tried to stick with. So that was the other thing. I also thought that there would be heads exploding over the fact that I yeah. actually talked to Brian and Tina, but I'm still waiting for a head to explode. All right. Well, um, <laughs> I, I think I heard a head explode in the other room. Uh, right there. So Finally. There is, there was a, it was a bomb that went off. Well, yeah. No. There was a slight pop. But, so they didn't, steal any, they didn't steal any UFO files. They liked them. No UFO files got stolen. <laughs> were, they were they experiences themselves? themselves? Uh, yeah. Actually, that's how they first got to know Dr. Heineck was that um, Tina had seen a UFO and a friend – uh, a friend said, oh, you should talk to this guy. I know J. Allen Hynek. He just happens to be in Phoenix right now for some work thing. So she got together, met with him, told him about her experience, and, and they hit, struck up a friendship. And, you know, that's how the whole thing got started. Mm-hmm. And, to, to, you know, in, in, in Hynek's final days, he was eternally grateful to Tina Choate for getting him out of Chicago and getting him away from <laughs> Chicago winters. So that he could at least, you know, spend his retirement years in the sunshine in Scottsdale. That's something that skeptics mm-hmm. and believers can agree on. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we all like the sun. Right. Well, um, so, so Mark, you know, I, I've read um, an article in, um, in the Skeptical Inquirer about Heineck. Uh, you know, saying that you know he there's this secret history of him, uh, and it, it basically was you know about the Rudolf Steiner stuff and the Ros- Rosicrucian stuff, and intimating that that you that you can't have um, spiritual beliefs and be a skeptic at the same time. Yeah, yeah, is <laughs> essentially what they're saying there. So you know, to me, that's like why you can't go to church you, you can't um you, you you know you have to be completely uh, an atheist to be a skeptic i mean so i mean we have to be skeptical of the the skeptics as well so what would you say about that mark that was one of the first articles i read when i started researching this book because as i recall it was published around 2011 or 2012 um, and it was right when I was starting to really dig into Heineck's life. So I saw that article and thought, aha, I've got to read that. And yeah, I ended up just scratching my head at the end of that article because I just thought the, argu- or the argument they're making abs- makes absolutely no sense to me. It's like not only is it what you said that you can't have spiritual beliefs and be a rational scientist at the same time, that our article also to me see- seemed to be making the case that if you change your mind about your beliefs, you must be a phony. And I, I just thought that was so, ins- it's just so insulting to the reader and to Dr. Hynek. I just think that's a nonsense argument. That's the, that was my takeaway from that article. I just thought, I'm not sure what you were trying to prove, but I don't think you proved it very well. Well, and to the research uh, process uh, in itself, because, you know, how does how does anybody start out with all the right answers? I mean, yeah. that's implausible. I mean, if you are doing research, if you are really uh, reading and thinking and going out there and doing field investigations, then your mind is going to change because yeah. you start out not knowing. You start out with misconceptions. I'm a fourth grade teacher, and we teach this <laughs> in our inquiry circles uh-huh. where... You know, if 
Your mind is changing. That is evidence of synthesis. That is evidence of learning. So, you know, don't hide that. I mean, that's, that's a beautiful thing that you thought one thing and then you did some legwork and lo and behold, your thinking changed. Yeah. That means you have a mind and you know how to use it. Well, did Dr. Hynek, when you said that he started off as a hardcore, you know, he was just there to debunk. When he moved from debunker to an open mind, was there a particular case that changed his mind? Was it, was it the North and South Dakota when he talked to somebody and he's like, oh man, I just, she's, I'm looking her in the eye and I don't think she's lying. And then you're like, you old softy, you got to be tougher. You're part of the Air Force now, son. <laughs> just the facts, ma'am. I, I think that was one of the cases that kind of started his thinking. There was another episode right about that same time where, where when, he, when he came back to work for the Air Force a second time, he was sent out on this sort of spy mission to um, survey professional astronomers and find out what his colleagues thought about UFOs. So he went to an astronomer's convention. He sort of crisscrossed the country and the West Coast, went to all these major observatories and just sort of, you know, just sort of subtly brought up the topic of UFOs with these with his colleagues when he would meet with them. And what he found was that about 11% of the astronomers that he talked to were willing to say that they had seen a UFO. And that's a pretty, it's 11 out of 45 astronomers. That's a pre, pretty good, pretty, oh wait, maybe it's 11%. Maybe it's not 11 sightings. Maybe it's 11%. Strike that. I think I may have gotten that wrong. But at any rate, the percent, the percentage of astronomers, I have so many numbers in my head, guys. I'm sorry. I don't always remember. No problem. Okay. But the number of astronomers, professional astronomers who were willing to say, yes, I've seen a UFO. And then the number of astronomers who also were willing to say, I haven't seen a UFO, but I think it's an interesting problem. And I think it's worth studying. The numbers of those people who would admit to those two things were high enough that Heineck started thinking, aha, I've got some intellectual cover here. There are other scientists who think that this is worth looking into. So that kind of started that whole train of thought, too. But I wanted to mention one story from um, at one point I interviewed a guy named Frank Reed, who was the basically the archivist and librarian for Dr. Heineck's Center for UFO Studies in Chicago. And he had a great line about Dr. Heineck. He said, he said, Dr. Hynek's views on UFOs vacillated from day to day and sometimes from hour to hour. But he said, I took that as proof of Dr. Hynek's scientific integrity. Hmm. And I thought, well, that pretty much sums it all up right there. I, I yeah. thought that was an incredibly hmm. insightful observation about Hynek. Well, you keep your mind open when it comes to these kind of things, um, especially when you have to you know, deal with the people who've had these experiences. And uh, if you're too... You know, believing, then uh, you open yourself up to to be discredited. But if you're too harsh, then you're not going to get the real stories from people because they're not going to open up to yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. So, so it sounds like the Close Encounters man was an awesome guy, and I wish I could have met him. I'm jealous of Lloyd Auerbach, one of my paranormal role models, because he got interested in the whole thing because he was uh, J. Allen Hynek's student at Northwestern. Oh, and man. Uh, he, he's like, that's when I got to think that maybe, you know, this stuff is real. And I'm and, like, and we weren't far away. We, we, we were in like, you know, the Midwest with Heineck. You know, we well, could have. We, we were 75 minutes away. We, we could have know. known him and we could have known each other too. And we could have started that Scooby gang that I talked about. You know, it's we, just like so have. many lost opportunities. Yeah. So that, that you, you guys just don't know sad. that. that 
Mark grew up in the same town as Allison and I did. A very small town thousand called people. Big Ben. Yeah, yeah Big thousand, Ben, Wisconsin. A thousand people right out uh, a southeastern suburb of Milwaukee. And Wendy grew up on the north side, too, so we could have jumped in the Scooby van and gone and picked her up. <laughs> <laughs> but we do have a Scooby van now, so now we can do it. Uh-huh. Yes, well, I want to okay. join you sometime. We'll make up for a last time. Yes, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I want to join Mark, you sometime come with Scooby You're going to have to jump in the Scooby van. We'll go to a paranormal convention. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you, you, we can hang out to see you on the other side booth. <laughs> Yeah, I'm there. Let's do it. Awesome. Speaking of conventions, we're recording this before the Haunted America convention uh, in Alton, Illinois. But next week, we're going to have a recap of that. So look out for that in the next episode. But right now, what we want to tell people is where they can pick up a copy of Close Encounters Man for themselves. We've been talking about it for the past hour, and uh, I know they're going to want to read this book. And so go to your Amazon, go to your Kindle, go to wherever you go to buy books. Go to your local bookseller um, if you believe in paper and want to kill trees. (laughs) I love killing trees. (laughs) Trees, they're asking for it all the time. But uh, buy the closest. This is the next UFO book you should buy um, because it's it's a really interesting study of a man. And it's, it's it's a balanced biography and it's written by our friend. So where can they get it? Well, you had it right. They can get it at Amazon. They can get it at any bookseller, uh, big chains like Barnes and Nobles or independent booksellers. Um, it's available everywhere, all over the country. The day the book came out, I got a, uh, I got a uh, my my little brother who lives in Boise, Idaho, sent me a picture of him holding up the book, just like that. Hey, awesome! At the Barnes and Nobles in Boise. So if it's in Boise, oh, cool. it's everywhere. That's great. Congratulations. Thanks. All right. If they get it, they sell it right next to the potatoes. Uh, okay. Thank you again for joining us, Mark. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Everybody, uh, if you want to uh, get a direct link right after this, othersidepodcast.com slash 150 is going to have a link where you can pick up the book. It's going to have a link to Mark's uh, UFO blog, and you can learn more, and plus a link to our past episodes with him. So you can pick up on that as well, because I know now that you got the 101, you're going to need the 201 and the 301. So you got <laughs> So, once again, thank you, Mark. Thank you, Allison from Milwaukee Ghost. Thanks, guys. Thank Good to see you both thank again. You, okay. Thank you, Mike. Thank you, Wendy. It was fun, as always. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. And now, let's go sneak to the song of the week. One of the most important aspects of Hynek's impact on ufology was how his beliefs evolved over time. He followed the evidence where it led without preconceived notions, which is one of the reasons we're still talking about him today. Evolution isn't easy, and adjusting your beliefs, whether it be about yourself or the universe, when you discover new truths, isn't easy. And some people can never change. That's what this week's Sunspot song, Archaeopteryx, is about. The dinosaur with feathers, we think of the Archaeopteryx as the link between those cold-blooded monsters and our modern birds, and how it sucks to be stuck in the middle, belonging to neither generation. The key line is evolve or die. That's how natural selection works, and that's how science works. If you aren't willing to change, then you are willing to go extinct. Here it is, Archaeopteryx by Sunspot. I'm lost in time, a relic of some forgotten past Where is my kind? I guess that they just couldn't last 
thank you for listening to today's episode. You can find us online at othersidepodcast.com. Until next time, see you on the other side. Hey, hey. Just another thank you for tuning in and listening today. And a huge shout out to our Patreon, Ned, who is contributing at a level where he gets a shout out every single episode. Special thanks to all of our Patreons for kicking in a little bit each month, making it possible for us to continue doing all of this fun stuff. You can join the community by visiting othersidepodcast.com slash donate. We've got our Patreon hangout coming up this week, and I'm very excited because we have a lot to talk about. It's Thursday, June 29th at 7 p.m. Central Time on Google Hangouts. So if you are one of our contributors, please, please join us. We'd love to talk to you. And thanks to every single one of you for tuning in. We look forward to talking to you next week. Cheers. What you saw was the planet Venus.